All right, well, thanks for tuning in. Those that are just now joining us, and thank all of you for being here tonight. We're in a study of 1 Peter, and the, the title of the whole study is Hope in a World That Is Not Our Home. That's kind of the summary of the book of 1 Peter, Hope in a World That Is Not Our Home. Now, I do not have an outline for you tonight, but I'm going to give you some things to write down if you have a notebook. Uh, I'm going to, from time to time, encourage you to write certain things down. So let me give you the title of what we're talking about tonight, for those of you that like to take notes and you have your notebooks. Let me give you the title of what we're going to be talking about. And the title is this, Who We Are in God's Eyes. Who We Are in God's Eyes. And the text tonight is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. If you're taking notes, again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. You want to open God's Word to that text. When we started this study, one of the questions that we tried to ask in that initial night as we were looking at 1 Peter was the question of, who is the audience that Peter is writing to? Uh, Who is it that he's addressing this letter to? And there's basically two different options, and and you can make a case for either one. Uh, One of the options is that Peter was writing this letter to a Jewish audience, that is, Jewish Christians. Jews who had put their faith in Messiah, that that was the audience, the intended primary audience of this letter. Others would make the case that no, the intended primary audience of this letter would be the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, and and this was written for their sake and for their benefit. Uh, And you could really make a case for either of those. Tonight's text leads me to believe that the audience probably, this is just my opinion, but The text tonight leads me to believe that the audience primarily, probably, was Jewish Christians that Peter was writing to. And you say, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter whether it was Jewish or Gentile? Well, in some ways, it doesn't because it still is addressed to all of us and is is an applicable word for all of us. But if if you understand the intended audience, sometimes you can have a better understanding of of a certain text, if you understand who's he's addre- who he is addressing this to, you can get a, a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of particular text when you understand the audience. So I believe that the text tonight would give us evidence that probably Peter was writing to Jewish Christians, Jews who had put their faith in Christ as Messiah. And the reason I say that is because Peter refers to, and he quotes, several Old Testament references that would be very familiar to Jews. So he's pointing back to Old Testament Scripture, to to certain concepts that would be very familiar to to Jewish readers. So here's an important theme. If you're taking notes, write this down. An important theme tonight in our study is this. The church does not cancel the Jewish heritage, but it fulfills it. The church does not cancel the Jewish heritage, but it fulfills it. So Peter is going to be making a a case tonight of who we are in God's eyes. And one of the things that he's going to clearly underline for us is that the church that Christ is building has not canceled, if you will, the Jewish heritage or what God was doing in the Old Testament. But just to the contrary, it actually fulfills what God started in the Old Testament, and with the Jewish heritage. In other words, if I could say it this way, what God did in the New Testament is not in opposition to what God has already done in the Old Testament. These are simply different chapters in the salvation story that God is writing. 
So what God did in the Old Testament and what God did in the New Testament and what God is doing today, those are simply chapters in the salvation story that God is writing. And Peter says to these New Testament Christians, you, now watch this, he's writing to New Testament Christians and he says to them, essentially in the text we're going to be looking at, he says, you are now God's chosen people. What God started in the Old Testament with your forefathers, he is now bringing to completion in your lives. You are now God's chosen people. And to help his readers grasp what he means by God's chosen people, Peter uses several different word pictures, several different analogies, if you will. And these analogies explain to us who Jesus is and who we are in God's eyes. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point that you might want to write down. We're going to talk about who Jesus is. Peter makes the case, he describes for us, in beginning of verse 4, who Jesus is. And he uses a title that we probably rarely, if ever, use. So let's look at the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, you'll see in a moment, Him is Jesus. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone. Quite an unusual title if you think about it. I mean, if you refer, in in today's vernacular, we sometimes refer to something as being stone cold dead, right? We don't think of stone as living. Like, man, I shot that deer stone cold dead, you know? That's kind of the way that, that we use that terminology. Because stone is something that's hard. And stone is something that is lifeless. And so that's the way we use that term. But Peter refers to that term as a living stone. Now, again, if you're taking notes, let me give you two reasons for that title. And these are so good. First of all, number one, Jesus is foundational to everything that God is going to do in the world. Thus the name stone. He's foundational to everything God's going to do in the world through salvation. He is, he is the stone. He's the foundation of everything God's going to do uh, through salvation. But He's not only just the stone. Number two, He is a life-giving stone. A life-giving stone. That's an important description. Do you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus referred to living water? talking to that lady and and he refers to now if you knew who was really talking to you you could have living water and and so he's referring to himself right that this normal thing called water he refers to himself and he puts watch this he puts life into that term you could have living water Uh, in John chapter 6 he does a similar thing with bread he talks about the living bread or the bread of life I am the bread of life. He takes something very common, bread, the term bread, and he puts life into it, referring to himself. I am the bread of life. Peter says in, in verse 5, that the, that, or I'm sorry, in verse 4, that Jesus is a living stone. He's foundational to everything that God's going to do salva- through salvation. He's foundation, but he's also life-giving. 
And the way that we know that he is life-giving is because in the next verse, Peter says in verse 5 that the believers in Jesus are also living stones. Look how he describes it. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable God to God through Jesus Christ. We'll talk about all of that in just a few moments. We'll talk about that more later. But just note that these believers that Peter is writing to are exhibit A, that Jesus is indeed a life-giving stone. That the believers themselves, verse 5, the believers themselves are exhibit A. That Jesus is indeed a life-giving stone. Because they too are becoming living stones. Now, I want you to notice how Peter, going back to verse 4, I want you to notice how Peter describes this living stone in verse 4. There's three different phrases. You might want to write these down. They're, They're right there in the text. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, at first description, he said, rejected by men. Rejected by men. This living stone, rejected by men. But, in contrast to that, chosen by God. That's the second description. Rejected by men, but chosen by God. And then the third description is, and precious to Him. That is, precious to God. If, you take, if you're taking notes, I want you to look at those, those three things that you just listed. Referring to Jesus in this, in this regard, rejected by men, Chosen by God, precious to Him, precious to God. This is, in essence, a summary of the gospel that Jesus or that Peter preached throughout the book of Acts. That when Peter was preaching, Peter, the man who wrote this letter, in the book of Acts, when Simon Peter was after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, Peter was one of the apostles going out across the land to preach the gospel and to tell people about Jesus. And guess what he talked about? He talked about how Jesus was rejected by men, how he was chosen by God, and how God he was precious to God. Let me show you this in Scripture. Uh, Go to Acts. Just one example. Peter did this numerous times in the book of Acts. But let's go to Acts chapter 4. Just one example. Acts chapter 4, if you take any notes, it's verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, that is said, he was talking to the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, quote, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That was the message that Peter preached. And now when he's writing this letter, he's emphasizing those same three things. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. And that really is the theme of this entire text we're going to be looking at tonight. That Jesus was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. 
Now, I want you to notice there are four other important descriptions of this living stone. Going back to chapter 4, in verse 6, I want you to read verse... I'm sorry, I'm in Acts. Let me go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, going back there. I want you to read verse 6. I want you to give me uh, a description. One of the descriptions of this living stone in verse 6. How is this living stone referred to in verse 6? What's the description? All right, I think I'm hearing it, but let's, let's read the text. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious, what's that next word? Cornerstone. We'll come back to that word in a few moments to help you understand what it means, but right now I just want you to notice uh, one of the four descriptions of this precious living stone. In verse 6, Peter refers to this living stone as a cornerstone. Again, we'll come back to what that means in a moment. And then in verses 6 and 7, this same stone, not only is a cornerstone, but is referred to as a precious stone. Verse 6, for in the scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Again in verse 7, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. And I've told you before, you've heard me say it many times, when you see a word emphasize more than once in, in, in the same verse or in a couple of verses. It's like a red flag saying, this is pretty important. You need to take note of this. And so two times in those two verses, we see that not only is this living stone a cornerstone, but this living stone is also, in God's eyes, a precious stone. Watch this. Unlike anything else, really is kind of what that word means. Precious, it's unlike anything else. But there's two other descriptions to this stone. It's verse 6, it's a cornerstone. Verse 6 and 7, it's a precious stone. And amazingly, in verse 7, flip the coin over. Amazingly, in verse 7, it is the rejected stone. Look at verse 7. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, and he's quoting from Scripture again, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, or that word means the cornerstone. Again, we'll come back to that text. But So first of all, this living stone is the cornerstone, it's the precious stone, it is the rejected stone. And then number four, it's described as, watch this, verse 8, the stumbling stone. And a stone that causes men to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. All of those very intriguing and important descriptions of this living stone who is representative of Jesus. And in a few minutes, we'll try to dig into what those mean. But for now, I just want you to notice that this stone is not incidental to God's salvation plan. That this stone is essential to everything that God's doing in the world. That this living stone is not just a side issue. But, but is indeed essential to everything God wants to do in the world. And by, by the way, it's also essential to what God wants to do in your life. In fact, I would say to you, there are two central questions that every person on planet earth has to answer. Either now or later. But there are two central questions that everybody has to come to grips with. And those questions are, first, number one, who is Jesus? And number two, how have I responded to him? 
That really is what this text is about. Who is Jesus? Peter calls him the living stone. Peter calls him the cornerstone. Peter calls him the precious stone. And how have I responded to him? Peter said some people have rejected him. He's the rejected stone. And some people, because they have rejected him, they have stumbled over him. For some, he is the stumbling stone. So really, kind of the hinge verses, if you're you're taking notes, you might want to write down the hinge, H-I-N-G-E, the hinge verses in this entire text is verses 7 and 8. I'll read it for you, and then I'll show you why I say this is kind of the hinge of the entire text. Verses 7 and 8. Now to you who believe, hopefully that's you right here, right? To you who believe, This stone is precious. I hope Jesus is precious to you. That you really know him and he's precious to you. But to those who do not believe, perhaps that is you today or tonight or maybe somebody watching. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You see, Christ will have one of two effects on people. I've seen this locally and I've seen it around the world. Jesus Christ will have one of two effects on people. Either he will be precious and someone you have placed your faith in or he will become a stumbling stone for you that you reject. Now, there's a title in verse 7 that we need to make sure we understand. I told you we'd get to it. And that's that title because it's so important to this text. The title is the cornerstone. In verse 7, in the NIV, it's referred to as the capstone. But it's still a reference to the cornerstone. Uh, The the reason for that, uh, because the capstone or the cornerstone is the most honored part of the building. The, The capstone is the most honored part of the building. So let me talk to you a little bit about this idea of a cornerstone. Let's read the text again. For in Scripture it says, verse 6, in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Alright, so where does this idea come from? I want you to go with me. To Psalm 118, 118, verse 22. The 118th Psalm, if you're taking notes. Verse 22. I want to track with you this idea of a cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Does that sound familiar? Peter was quoting that, wasn't he? He was quoting the psalm. The the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. This is a psalm that has messianic imagery. That is, this is a psalm that's pointing to the Messiah. And he says very clearly, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. And again, the capstone is the most honored stone in the building. The most honored stone part of the building. Alright, so, keep this in mind. 
The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. Now, go to Matthew 21. It's interesting that when Jesus spoke one day to religious leaders, he used this same scripture. Matthew chapter 21. Just so you'll have the context, I want you to read verse 23 and tell me who is Jesus talking to in Matthew 21, verse 23. Who is he conversing with? Say a little louder for me. Jesus, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, here's who he is talking to. The chief priest and the elders of people came to him and they have a question. Uh, by what authority are you doing these things, they ask, and who gave you this authority? So there's this conversation, this dialogue that happens, okay? Now, fast forward to verse 42. Jesus said to them, them being the religious leaders that we just read about. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? Psalm have you ever read Psalm 118 verse 22? That's what he's saying. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, now keep reading. This, this gets very interesting. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God, watch this. He's speaking to religi Jewish religious leaders. And look what he says to them after he quotes this scripture about the rejected stone becoming the capstone or the cornerstone. He says, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Because you have rejected the cornerstone. Because you have rejected the cornerstone, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. Verse 44. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now verse 45. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They knew that when he was talking about this rejection of the cornerstone, and that God was going to take the kingdom of God away from them because of the rejection of the cornerstone, they knew he was talking about them. And so it says in verse 46, they looked for a way to, to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Alright, so we've seen it in Psalm 118. We've seen it in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 21. Now let's go to Acts chapter 4. We were there a moment ago, but let's go back there one more time. Since you now have this context. Acts chapter 4. Just read one verse. Chapter 4, verse 11. Well, let's start in verse 10. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, quote, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So when we go to 1 Peter, the same man who said that, is writing the material we are reading in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is what he says in verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, 
He quotes again, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Okay, so real quickly, let me tell you what the cornerstone was and is. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. The cornerstone determined the design and the orientation of the building. The cornerstone determined the design and the orientation of the building. It was the most significant stone in the structure. It was the starting point. You get this cornerstone right, and the rest of the building will be right. It's, I'm not, I, I don't know that I've ever really built a fence. It seems like I tried once, but I understand the concept of a corner post for those of you who have built some fences in your time. Terry, I bet you've built some fences in your time probably. Huh? What? Build them and torn them down. All right. So there's the corner post that is kind of essential to the rest of the fence, right? And a little bit of the same concept here, that the cornerstone was the initial stone. It, was, it determined the design of the building. It determined the, the direction, the orientation of the entire building. It was the most central stone in the whole structure. And what's so interesting about this is that there's two attitudes toward this cornerstone in verse 6. Some trust in him, it says in verse 6. For in the scripture, see, I lay, in Zion, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, a precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in, if you mark your Bibles, underline, the one who trusts in him. That's one of the responses to the stone. That is that you can trust in him. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's one response to the stone. The other response, of course, is in verse 7. Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is, others reject him. And as a result of rejecting him, they stumble and they fall. So, that, that's the first point is who Jesus is. He is the cornerstone. He is foundational to everything that God is doing in salvation for the world. And he is the life-giving stone. He is the one that provides life to us who are stone dead cold spiritually. He's the life-giving stone. So let me quickly go to point number two, and we'll move a little quicker through this material. Point number two, if you're taking notes, is this. I want to talk about who we are as followers of Jesus. We talked about who Jesus is. He's the living stone. He's the cornerstone. Uh, We talked about who Jesus is, number one. Number two, let's talk about who we are as followers of Jesus. Of Jesus, going back to verse 4 and 5, I love the way he says this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, watch this, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there, there's a lot of material there, of course. But do you remember, let's just start here. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter back in Matthew chapter 16? If you just go back, let me give you a hint. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, part of that chapter deals with uh, the disciples being at Caesarea Philippi. And at Caesarea Philippi, 
Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And they give up various responses. And Peter finally, by the Spirit of God, says, you're the Christ. You're Messiah. You're Son of the living God. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, around verse 30 or so, Jesus said, on this rock, this stone, if you will, I will build my church. I think that had to be echoing in Peter's mind as he writes these words. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You see, this is the spiritual house that God is building. Uh, Can I say it to you this way? Did you know that we as Christians, we are in the middle of an ongoing construction process? Christ is in the process of building His church all over the world. Those dead, lifeless stones are being quarried from the pit of sin and and they're being brought to life by the living stone. Each time someone trusts in Christ as Savior, another stone is placed in the living, growing church of God. In fact, I just, I got a text, it was just this afternoon, some of you remember Caleb Crittenden, wonderful young man who served us as, as an interim student pastor, we still stay in touch, he texted me today, I'm going to read you part of what he said, because it's just such a great example of this. Hey, Pastor Keith, join with me in celebrating the salvation of a young man who has been participating in our coaches huddle at Wofford since the fall. By the way, Caleb Crittenden has started a new position, and he's working for FCA. And he's on, I think, four different college campuses uh, sharing Christ and discipling men on those four different college campuses. So he, he texts me today, said, hey, join with me in, this, in celebrating the salvation of a young man. Today was the day he finally surrendered. His words were, I'm the only thing standing in the way and I'm ready to move. Today, he prayed to begin his new life in Christ. Here's what I want you to see. Today, the living stone, Jesus, added another stone to the church he's building. And that is a beautiful picture. I got goosebumps on my arms right now because look what Peter says. As you come to him, the living stone, verse 4, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Christ is building his church. And every time somebody puts their faith in Christ, the living stone, another living stone is added to what to the church that Christ is building. Can somebody say amen to that, please? Thank God that at Walford University today, another stone was added to the church. But not only are we living stones, Peter used another analogy. He calls us a royal priesthood. Uh, And I'm going to go through this rather quickly. A royal priesthood. Uh, Look in verse 5 and in verse 9. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. There are two implications of this priesthood that Peter is referring to. If you're taking notes, let me give you those two things. Uh, What does it mean to say that we are now part of a royal or holy priesthood? It means two things. Number one, we, we have unmediated access to the throne of God. I'll explain that to you, but just write it down. We, as priests of God, have unmediated access to the throne of God. All you have to do is go over and find Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And I can show this to go over to the left. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 16. You, you, you may very well have this, this verse memorized. It says, Let us then approach the throne of grace. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go to verse 14. Because it's just so much there. Therefore, since we have a great... What's that next phrase? We have a great what, church? We have a high priest. Now, in the Old Testament days, there was the high priest, and then there were also other priests that served. They served under the high priest. There was only one high priest. But there were many other priests that served in in the temple area. And so, look what it says in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us... Hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now here's the verse I want you to get to, verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with, what's that next word? Confidence. You know why? Because you're part of the royal priesthood. Part of the holy priesthood. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's what I mean by unmediated access to the throne of God. Because of Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, you don't need an animal sacrifice to cleanse you. Because of Jesus Christ, you don't need an earthly priest or an earthly pastor to be the middleman between you and God. Because of Jesus Christ, there's no special ceremony that you have to go through in order to enter God's presence. We have, because of Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God. And how do I know that? Because Jesus said, when you pray, go find a priest. That's not what he said. When you pray, go give a sacrifice. That's not what he said. He said, when you pray, here's what you do. You just say, our Father, who art in heaven. So as royal priests or as holy priesthood, we have unmediated access to God. We don't need a go-between. Jesus is our go-between between us and a holy God. The second thing that means, the second implication of being a royal priesthood is we have the privilege and the responsibility of ministering to others. We have the privilege, and Tom, that's probably what you were talking about. We have the privilege and the responsibility of ministering to others. To others, Besides being living stones in God's building, uh, we have this privilege of being a minister to others. We, I don't want to run out of time, so I'm not going to stay too long here. But I'll, let's just go to First uh, Peter again. Go back there. Let's go to verse 9. Let me show you something. Verse 9. 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Um, Israel, for all throughout the Old Testament, Israel was God's special chosen people in the Old Testament, right? Uh, We don't have probably, I'm trying to look at the clock. I I don't think we have time to read all of this, but you can write down the reference. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. Israel was God's special chosen people in the Old Testament. And a lot of the phrases, the words that you see here in 1 Peter, you will find in Deuteronomy. Here, that's the key point I want you to get here. A lot of the phrases about being a chosen people, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, you'll find similar wordage in Deuteronomy because Israel was God's chosen people. But now, in New Testament days, the church is God's chosen people. Now, God has a plan for Israel. He's not setting them aside, but the church is the ultimate fulfillment of what God was, is going to do. He's called the church to be His unique witness to a wicked world. And I think we have seen, if you've been watching the news, I told you I'd say something about Ukraine. I think we have seen some of that on the news with the church in Ukraine. Just like God called the people of Israel to be a unique nation among the pagan nations, God has called the church to be a unique witness to Jesus Christ among the pagan nations of of our world today or the wicked nations of our world today. And we've seen that with the Christians and the church in Ukraine. I don't know if you've seen these images, but uh, in my mind I can still picture Christians on their knees in the town square praying, being a light in a very dark time. You may have seen the video of Christians gathering in the subway singing praises to God as their city is about to be attacked. And they gather as God's people in the subway station, probably partly for protection, but as they're there, they're singing praises to God. This is the kind of people we are to be. You see, how we live and who we live for is shaped by what God has done for us. Look in verse 10. Well, let's... Middle part of verse 9 and verse 10. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And he says in verse 10, once... You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a before and after picture, right? Before you came to Christ, then after you came to Christ. And because He's made the difference, He's the one you live for now. He's the one you turn to now. He's the one you trust in. Now, and then so I'm, I'm going to close by just giving you this information. Uh, number three, if you're taking notes, number three, I want to talk to you real quickly about the impact of living godly lives. The impact of living godly lives. Let me just read the text, verses 11 and 12. The impact of living godly lives. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. 
who abstain, underline that word abstain, abstain from sinful desires. And here's why. Because they war against your soul. You might want to underline that too. They war against your soul. And then he says in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. A lost and dying world should get a glimpse of who Jesus is as they watch you. What Peter say? A lost and dying world should at least get a glimpse of who Jesus is as they watch you. So he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers. This is not your world. This is not your ultimate home. You're aliens and strangers here. You're here for a short while, but this is not your permanent home. And the best way I can illustrate that is this. If you've ever gone on an international mission trip, you understand this scripture probably a little bit better. If you ever go on an international mission trip, it can be quite an enjoyable experience and it can be an, an, an incredible memory and, and you can do some amazing ministry there. But you recognize as you're there, the culture is different. And the language is different. And the food is different. And they don't always have Pepsi. And you recognize as you're in that foreign land, this is not my home. I'm just here for a while. This is not my home. And that's the picture Peter is painting for all of us. You're strangers and aliens here. Watch this. You're on a mission trip here. You're on a mission trip at planet Earth. And the culture is a little bit different. And the language is a little bit different. But you're on a mission trip. And one day, you're going to go home. You're just here for a little while. So while you're here for this little while, you make sure you keep telling people about the living stone. The stone that can put life into people so that God can continue to build His church one stone at a time. Let me pray with you. Father, thank You for Your goodness to us. Thank You for reminding us through Your Word that Jesus Christ is indeed a precious cornerstone. He is foundational to everything You're doing in this world. And He's life-giving. And may we continue to live as living stones and point to Him who makes the difference. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.